that uh, I love, you know, from time to time, uh, I know that I and I'm sure Pastor Ryan are asked um, several questions. You know, we're, we're a new church. We're, we're just been around for a few weeks now, and sometimes people in the community, they see your, your sign or they hear about you or they see your T-shirt or whatever it is. And so they ask you different song or different questions about about your church. And one of the one of the first questions that um, is, that I often am asked is, "What kind of music do you sing?" Right? It's a pretty important question to a lot of people. And um, I, I find that a very challenging question to answer because one, I don't really know uh, the music lingo. <laughs> one is probably the most important thing. But but um, the other is it's it's hard for me to describe really what it is. And so typically. What, what myself and, and Ryan do is we just say we worship. We worship Jesus. And, um, and, and so we, we, you know, we, we avoid, though, are you, do you sing traditional music? Do you sing contemporary music? I don't even know what either one. I don't even know how to define either one of those. So we just sing. We sing about Jesus. Um, and, and as I prayed in our welcome, everything we do at Redemption Hill, we want to point to Jesus. And when our singing and our, our teaching as we do here um, in our women's and men's Bible studies, all that stuff, we want to point to Jesus. And, and my belief is this, if we point to Jesus, we can't do it, we can't do it wrong, right? So as long as it's being pointed to Je- Jesus, it's, it's good. Um, but I, I do love how, how Pastor Ryan does take um, some new songs that we may have not heard before and also grab some of these older songs that, um, that we have heard. Some of us who grew up in the church that had the choir robes and the organs, that song we just sang was a song that we would have grown up singing. And I love that song, and, and I know that he didn't, well, I shouldn't say I know he didn't, but um, it, that, that song fits perfectly in what we're going to talk about this morning. I love that there's that phrase in there, and I, don't, I won't get it right, but um, where it says that our hearts are prone to wander. Um, and, and if we're all being sincere and, and genuine, we can all agree that our, we do have wandering hearts, that this, this journey in life as Christians, it can be difficult. Um, we, we have this battle within us that, we, that some of us, we want to pursue Jesus, but then we can easily be kind of grabbed and pulled in other directions. And so we do have wandering hearts. And this morning, I believe, this message that we're going to talk about, this section of Scripture we're going to talk about, um, we can see how Jesus works in that and, and what he does and, and the steps that in the picture that we read about Jesus today is not a picture that many of us often think about when we think about Jesus a lot of us uh, according was telling me the other day she was she she had this um, little questionnaire to find out if you if if you really were brought up in church if you grew up in church and it was all these like 25 questions if you knew who salty was how many guys know who salty was okay those of you, then you grew up in church, okay? Um, and, and, so all these, and one of them, one of the questions was, if you believe that Jesus wore the white robe, and when you think of Jesus, let's see, he has the sash, the, 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 the belt, what color do you think it was? Blue, right? Yep, you all grew up in church, right? That's the way it is, right? But, but our minds are programmed some way. So we think of this, this Jesus with the long, flowing blonde hair, the, the nice, clean white robe and the blue sash belt. And we think of this meek, mild, soft-tempered Jesus. And the story we read about this morning, it reveals, it shows us a little different side of Jesus. And so if you have your Bibles, please turn to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. And we're going we're gonna to look at the, the end of this, this chapter. John chapter 2. We're going to read 
and study verses 13 through uh, 25. And we're, we're going to try and read a few verses and stop and pause and talk about them and then continue on this journey. Before we go ahead and read, let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for all the things that you've done. We thank you for bringing us all here this morning. And um, I do believe, Lord, that, that these are divine appointments, that you brought everyone here specifically for a reason. And I don't know what that reason is, Lord, but you do. I pray that you meet us all where we're at and that this morning you turn over some tables in our own hearts and lives and that you reveal to us some areas that we need to clean up. Um, not that we need to follow rules and that the rules are going to save us or, or anything like that, Lord, but, but there's some stuff in our lives that, that need to be addressed and, and that we need to clean up a little bit, Lord, so we can grow closer to you. So this morning, help us, Lord. Open our eyes, open our, our hearts, open our minds, and, and Holy Spirit, I ask you to use me. Help me to be your mouthpiece. Uh, help me not to get caught in anything that I necessarily specifically believe or desire. Anything that, help me to push aside any of those things, Lord. And I ask and pray and beg this morning that, that these words be from you, that we focus on your word and we draw, draw closer to you because of not my words, but your words. It's in your son's beautiful and precious name we pray. Amen. All right, so you have your Bibles here. John chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 13. Verse 13 says, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, one thing I just want to draw attention to there. At the beginning we see this, it says the Passover. This term, this idea of Passover, um, John will use throughout his gospel. It's, it's a kind of a signpost of Jesus' ministry. So very often John refers to the Passover. Um, and, and this particular time, the, the Passover is about to occur. And when we look back to the idea of the Passover, we get to go all the way back to the Old Testament, right? And, when, and, and, and Moses is going to help free um, the Israelites in, e in Egypt. And, and then we have this idea where there's this special sacrifice. And, and the specific animal used here during the Passover would be the lamb. If you remember, this is when... Um, we have this deal where, where the Holy Spirit or, or the angel is going to come over Egypt and, and they need to specially prepare this lamb and then they take the blood of the lamb and they put it over the doorposts. And, and whatever doorpost had this lamb's blood, the angel would pass over. But the ones that didn't have this blood, it would, the firstborn would, would, would die, right? So it was, it was part of this deal between Pharaoh and Moses and the freedom. But this idea of Passover became a very, um, very important holiday time for these these people where they could look back to God and what he had done now what's interesting is there's another feast holiday that would take place seven days after Passover it was called the feast of unleavened bread All right, so it doesn't specifically mention the feast of unleavened bread but what I want us to think about this is the, during the feast of unleavened bread they had to go through their homes and remove all of the leaven they removed every trace of it See, the, that idea, that, that leaven was a symbol of sin. And so they would have to go through their cupboards to get rid of it, go through their, chick, their, their, their cooking utensils, make sure it was all gone. They had to clean it all out of the house for this feast of unleavened bread. And what we're going to see this morning is, is Jesus kind of takes this idea of the feast of unleavened bread, of going through and cleaning the house when he shows up at this temple area. Okay, so the Passover takes place, and at this time we have all sorts of people traveling to Jerusalem. Okay, uh, Jewish historians will tell us that there were approximately 250,000 uh, males alone 
you, you include the, the family, the, the wives, the children, and stuff, that during this time, the time of Passover, there could have been upwards of over 3 million people located in Jerusalem around this temple. And the temple's constructed, there were four courtyards. Okay, four courtyards. The, the furthest courtyard would have been the courtyard of the Gentiles. And this courtyard, anyone and everyone was welcome to. Okay, men, women, um, Jews, Gentiles, and anybody was welcome into this courtyard, the, cor- the courtyard of the Gentiles. Then you would go over one more courtyard. This was called the courtyard of the Israelites. The, the, only the, 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 Israel, the Jewish people were allowed into this courtyard, the men and women. The Gentiles, if they were caught in this second courtyard, the penalty was death. Okay, so this was a very segmented area. Right? So anybody and everybody in the, the courtyard of the Gentiles, the, the, the courtyard of the Israelites narrows it down. And then you would go over to the next one, which would have been the courtyard of the men. In this courtyard, it was only the men allowed. Okay? And then the final courtyard was the courtyard of the priests, and that, that adjoined the, uh, the temple. And only the, only the priests were allowed in this particular courtyard. Okay? So we, we got these four courtyards. The furthest one out, courtyard of the Gentiles, everyone's allowed to. Okay? And this, this particular story takes place in this courtyard of the Gentiles. <clears throat> so we see here, verse 13, Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Okay, not uncommon. All the people are flocking to Jerusalem. Verse 14 says, In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers were sitting there. They would show up to the temple, and they had to have a sacrifice. There were two things that would take place. They would have a sacrifice, an amulet they would sacrifice, and they would pay a, a temple tax, if you will. Okay, So, again, courtyard of the Gentiles where everyone's allowed. They have these guys that are selling these animals that would be used for their, their sacrifice. And they would also have people that would have these money exchangers. That sounds a little different. Well, people come, why can't they use their money? Well, they had to use the shekel because the other money would have a, a, an, ex, an inscription of Caesar or some other foreign dignitary or whatever. And so they wanted it to be, in their minds, a, a pure sort of form of payment or whatever. It did not did not glorify another person outside of God. So they had these shekels, okay? So you guys tracking with me? Animals, money changers, they're all there. Somewhat not uncommon, right? People are going to go there. If they don't have their animals, they need to buy one for their sacrifice. Um, And then they have to also go through this inspection. So verse 13, verse 14, they're all there. And then we go into verse 15. It says, And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Jesus shows up, and we see this change. He shows up through the temple. Same place that for years he would have gone as a worshiper. Last week we talked about his, his, his first step out into ministry. His, his earthly ministry has now begun. He comes, and, and last week's message was this idea of joy. He shows up, he, the power over shame, right? This, this wedding's going on, not enough wine for the people, and so Jesus takes the water, turns it into wine, joy celebration. Okay, so we have happy Jesus last week. Jesus shows up this week, though, walks into this first courtyard, and he sees what's going on. During this time, this courtyard would have been known in that community as the Bazaar of Annas. He was a former chief priest. The Roman government itself had removed him from power some 15 years probably before this took place. 
But here we have this, this man who was almost acting like the godfather in this area. Although he was not himself physically the chief priest, his sons and son-in-laws were the ones in charge. They had become like puppets for him. And they had created this ring. So you go in and you, you, you have to bring your animals there. They would inspect your animals to make sure that they were perfect without blemish. And what would occur is they would find blemishes. And they would force you to have to buy one of their pre-approved animals. Except the rate would go up. They, they would say, as, as best I can tell through reading commentaries and, and, and some Jewish history, that it would be up to ten times the normal value. So a steep price. And then you would have to, in most cases, exchange your money. But again, at an increased rate. Somewhere between 10 and 25% the exchange rate. And so Jesus walks in and he sees all this stuff going on. And this scene in this, Jew, in this courtyard of Gentiles was a mixture of a flea market and stock market exchange. Animals running around, people going frantic, and they're trying to find their stuff. And Jesus looks and he sees his people being ripped off. And we begin to see a side of Jesus that we don't typically think about. Because he, he, he gets upset, he gets mad, and, and, the, and the Bible tells us he begins to flip the tables. I want you guys to look at one thing, though. Before he starts flipping tables and, and starts yelling, verse 15 says, in making a whip of cords. Jesus walks in and he sees what's going on. He's upset, he's mad. But before he acts, he begins to make this whip. Later on, we see in the next verse that before he starts flipping the tables, starts shooing all the animals away, he goes and tells the people who, who are, are, are taking care of the pigeons, the doves, to get out. And so what's important for us to understand and to see here is that Jesus doesn't just fly off. Jesus doesn't just, just get, lose his head and goes frantic and crazy. That he's under control. He thinks before he acts. He knows what he's going to do. Furthermore, he knows the response of the people. He knows the response of the Jewish leaders. He knows it's not going to be kindly received. He flips the tables, the money changers, and overturns their tables. Verse uh, 16 says, And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Verse 17 says, His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. That's a reference from Psalms 69, verse 9. Jesus had a passion for the temple the earthly temple. We also read in Scripture how that temple, the view of the temple, begins to change. Jesus is upset. The one place that people should be able to go to seeking help, that people should be able to go to for protection, the, the one place that people should be able to see the light of God would be the temple. But these priests 
had turned it into this racket. They were ripping the people off. They were taking advantage of individuals. And Jesus began to act on it. We begin to see, as I referred to at the beginning, this idea of the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Jesus wants to go into the temple and cleanse it. Get rid of all the leaven. Get rid of all of the sin. But he does it in a controlled manner. What I find amazing is the response of the people, response of the Jewish leaders there. After he does all this stuff, the disciples realize, they remember this, this verse from Psalms, but the zeal that Jesus has for, this passion that Jesus has for the temple. Um, in verse 18 it says, And so the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? I hope that strikes you as odd. They, don't, they, don't, they ask him, why is he doing this? What, what sign? Give, give me a sign. Because according to this, they, they know that he's, he's acting under some idea of authority. And so they want Jesus to show them a sign of his authority. Where does that authority come from? The initial response, I don't think, is necessarily wrong. They were very careful about who would take authority, much like we would be today, right? Somebody gets up and makes a, a, a broad or a strong statement, a statement of authority. We kind of want to know who that person is and on what foot they have to make that kind of statement. Right? We, we, we'll see we, a lot of times during our election years, um, you see people campaigning for things and they make strong statements, right? And they're, they're trying to get your, your vote or whatever else. And, and so we hopefully do our research to figure out what they believe and all those kind of things, right? And so, so when somebody makes those strong statements, we want to know who they are, what they are, what they believe. And so the idea of them questioning is authority isn't necessarily wrong, except it comes with this demand, a demand for a sign, a miracle. I think many of us today struggle with this idea of our own faith. There are some people that when it comes to them having to make a decision to follow Jesus, they want a sign. They pray for a a sign. They want um, something tangible to hold on to. Maybe some type of financial answer to prayer, maybe just a specific answer to prayer, maybe some form of healing. Before I'm going to believe and follow, I need this sign. The hard part about that is one sign typically is not enough, is it? God may answer that one sign, but then later on in our faith journey, something goes wrong and we need another sign. We need another wonder in our life. And suddenly Jesus becomes into this one that we worship because of what he does and not who he is. One of the, thing, one of the great tragedies, I believe, especially in our culture, is Jesus has become one that we worship for things that he does and not who he is. My prayer for myself is this, that, that I quit trying to go to Jesus with just a list of requests but that he melts my heart to be like his heart and that I get to know Jesus better. 
that I draw closer to Jesus, that I know him more, that I don't want him just for a miracle, but I want him as my Savior. They never ask why he did it. You would think with, with somebody walking in there and starts flipping tables and he's hollering and, and everything that they would wonder, why, why are you doing this? The reality is they all knew that the temple was corrupt. They just wanted to know on what authority he had to stand on. Jesus answers. Verse 19, Jesus says to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Bible doesn't tell us this, but it's my belief that as he makes this statement, he's pointing to himself as the temple. Because we see here um, in the following verse, verse 20, says, the Jews said to him, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? They're completely perplexed. Herod began this renovation process of the temple. It had been going on for 46 years. Okay, this time when this is taking place, it's, it's somewhere between 80, 28, and, and 30. The temple would not be completed until 64. So it takes some, some close to 80 years to do this renovation. And Jesus says to them, listen, you destroy this temple, I will rebuild it in three days. These people automatically begin to think of the physical structure, the building. How in the world can one guy, we've been laboring on this thing for years. They estimate that some 18,000 people have been involved in this renovation process. And how can one guy, some Galilean carpenter that's some 30 years old, roll up here and say that you can destroy this temple and I'll build it in three days? Obviously, Today, us looking at this passage, we realize that he's not talking about the physical structure of a temple, of a building. He's talking about his temple. He's foreshadowing what will happen some three years down this road. He knows these, these same Jewish leaders who are questioning his authority now, then, here, will be the same Jewish leaders involved in his execution. They question the authority then, they'll question the authority later. And he tells them, listen, destroy the temple, and I will raise it up in three days. I will raise it up in three days. As we talked about earlier, Jesus had a zeal for his father's house. He refers to the temple here in this passage as his father's house. Towards the end of Matthew, the description changes. He no longer calls it his father's house, but he calls it their house, the Jews' house. See, when the temple was constructed um, years ago, there was this thing they called the Shekinah glory. In the temple, and a few weeks ago, we had a picture of the inside of the temple. And the back part of the temple would be a place called the Holy of Holies. And located in that Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. And there was this, the priest would go in there once a year. They would, they would strap a rope to his, his ankle and a bell would ring. 
And so if they didn't, if it, if they didn't hear the bell ring anymore, they could pull him out because only the chief priest was allowed in. Because this is where God was. Now God's omnipresent. He's everywhere. But, but God gave them this Shekinah glory, this fire. It's the same that we see and read about in, in when Moses found the fiery bush. It's that same fire that led the children of Israel, that pillar in the wilderness. It would be that same, same Shekinah glory that would rest on Mount Sinai. And as they constructed this, first the synagogue and then later the temple, it would rest over the Ark of the Covenant. It was something God gave the people to know that he was there with them. But we read in Ezekiel that that Shekinah glory had left because the people had changed. They had no longer gone to the temple with the right reasonings. They had abandoned God's glory. Jesus, despite this, has this passion for the temple. Has that same passion today. We don't have a temple. Today we often refer to it as a church. It's my belief that the church exists for three reasons. And these aren't earth-shattering new reasons, but, but I think the first reason is exaltation. primary reason why we come to church is to exalt Jesus, exalt God. It's why we include worship music. It's us worshiping God. It's us worshiping Jesus, Holy Spirit. It's us worshiping. It's us exalting Him. Why? Paul tells us that we were created for His pleasure. The second reason I believe that the, the church exists is edification. To build up. That it, it's at church that we come together and we build each other up. That we strive for spiritual maturity. We do that in the teaching. We do that in our Bible studies. We do that even in our worship music. So we, we're here for exaltation, ed, or edification, and then the last part is evangelism evangelization. It's a place that people can come and hopefully through exalting Jesus and edification, evangelism takes place. Evangelism is not the first, foremost reason we have church. It's the effect, it's the, the cause of the other two things. Jesus was passionate about the church, the temple then, and is passionate about the church today. When we get to the point of edification, one of the things that I believe that we are in great need of locally, nationally, and internationally is a strong, straightforward studying of God's Word. That we focus on what the Bible says. There are all sorts, of, you can go to bookstores, and there are sections and sections of self-help areas. Folks, you go to a Christian bookstore, the section's just as large. There's nothing wrong with these other books. There's nothing wrong with, with reading about different things. But, but folks, if, if this 
if, this is, we, if we neglect this to read those other books, then we're going to always fall short. See, we have the answers. We, we have God's words. A recent poll I, I read says that 88% of America has a literal Bible in their home. 88%. What's amazing is um, they say that, that, that 66% of those who are 19 to 29 believe that this book has all the important answers for life. It can guide them morally. It can help them relationally with their boyfriend, girlfriend, or spouses. That you can learn a lot of good things that will help you in life, but the reality is that same group that says this book contains that does not read it. And that's not me saying that. It's them saying it. God's Word holds the answers. God's Word is the key. God's Word is hopefully what we always focus on. The moment we stray away from this, we enter very dangerous waters. Verse 21 says, But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. As all this is taking place, Jesus and his disciples show up at the temple. Jesus doesn't huddle up with his guys and say, guys, listen, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to clean this thing out. I'm going to make this cord. I'm going to start whipping it. I'm going to start flipping tables. Be careful. The oxen, all that stuff are going to come running at you. Just watch out. The disciples themselves, I'm sure, based on that last phrase, are standing back saying, what in the world just happened? Holy cow. The other thing I think we notice in this, in this passage is that soft, mild, meek Jesus that we think about was not this frail man that people would laugh at. I'm quite sure there were more priests, and if they had this racket going on, they probably had their bouncers there with them. And notice how nobody stops Jesus. You notice that? Like when he's finally done flipping the tables and hollering and yelling and clears it out, that's when they begin to talk. Jesus, when he would, would, would communicate, we see time after time after time in his ministry, beginning here is he would make statements to divide the camp, to divide the people. In two groups those who had receptive hearts and those who had hard hearts. And as we finish this section here, we realize where he places his attention. Verse 21, um, or verse 23, I'm sorry. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. And when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and indeed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in a man. The Bible tells us that as all this stuff goes down, a lot of people believe him. 
But Jesus doesn't commit himself to them. It sounds kind of hard here, doesn't it? The reality is this. Jesus realized they had very shallow faith. They believed because of his signs and wonders. It goes back to what I said earlier. Why do we believe in Jesus? Why do we trust in Jesus? Is it because there's a hope that if we do, then life will be good? Life will be easy? That because if I believe in Jesus, all these other tangible things, my mortgage, my job, my marriage, everything will be good because of Jesus. Is that why we follow Jesus? Is it because of his signs, because of his wonders? Or is it about because who he is? The disciples sit back and they see all this stuff take place. And no doubt they were confused. That statement about building a temple, tearing it down and building it up in three days, his disciples are probably thinking, I have no idea how to lay brick. How are we going to do this? The Bible tells us, though, that Jesus, one day, his temple was torn down. Jesus would be arrested, beaten, flogged. As he, in that temple courtyard, would construct this whip that some three years later, somebody else would have a whip. Except this whip would have these pieces of glass and stone. And they would crack over his back. And those stones, as they would hit his back, would create these welts and bruises. And it would begin to rise up and swell. And as it would begin to rise up and swell, the glass would tear into his back. And then they would mock him, make fun of him, make fun of his authority as being a king, and throw a, a robe on his back. And as his back began to um, bleed, and, and, and as the, the blood would begin to grab a hold of that purple cape or whatever they put on him. And they would rip it off again, bringing that flesh off with it. And they would put that nice crown of thorns on his head. Those are the same leaders that were there then. And as all that's taking place, and Jesus lays on that cross, the Bible tells us, After his resurrection, after, after he dies, all the disciples huddle up and they're scared to death because they think they're all coming after him and they're praying and Jesus comes back to life three days later. That Easter Sunday that we gloriously celebrate. It was then that the disciples finally, it, it clicked, they understood. Oh, the temple, it wasn't a building, it was you. The awesome part is that temple wasn't just Jesus. Because the scripture tells us that we become his temple. 
that he resides in us. For those who accept Christ as his Savior, he resides in us. We become his temple. And one day our temple will be torn down. But the Bible also tells us that it will be resurrected. And then, then we all stand in judgment. And it'll all come down to one decision we make in life. One. Doesn't matter how many good things you do, how many bad things you do. It comes down to one decision. Whether we accept Jesus as our Savior or not. And for those who accept Jesus as our Savior, we get ushered into heaven and we spend eternity exalting Jesus Christ. We get to sit at his, at, his, at his feet and we just get to praise Jesus for eternity. We get to join with the angels screaming, Hosanna, hallelujah, for eternity. And then those who reject face a much different eternity. And as bad as we can paint the picture of what hell is like, it will fall desperately short of the reality of what it is. And the worst part of hell will not be the fire, will not be the wailing and the weeping. The worst part of hell will be eternal separation from Jesus Christ. It's my heart, my prayer that we all make the decision to accept God, Jesus, as our Savior. That judgment, though, we see God working in our lives continually. Last week we talked about joy. Today we see a little bit different side of Jesus and judgment. Do you realize that Jesus today still goes, even those of us who have accepted Christ as our Savior, that he still does acts of judgment throughout our life. That he takes those cords and reveals to us areas that need to be cleaned up. I want you guys to understand this, though. These judgments of God The reason he does that is to produce joy in our lives. Understand this. There's no joy. Judgment becomes unbearable, doesn't it? But if there's no judgment, then sin begins to run rampant as we sang in that last song before the sermon started, we have wandering hearts, don't we? I have a wandering heart. If no one else in this room 
has a wandering heart. I have a wandering heart. And I need God to come in my life and from time to time to flip the tables. To get the whip out a little bit and say, Chad, no, no, Chad, stop, stop. And he does that to produce joy in our lives. He does that so we come back to him, draw closer to him, that we can exalt him, that we can live a much joyful life than we would had he not come in there and brought judgment. The Bible tells us that we can find joy, we can find fun in sin for a season. But that path will lead us to destruction. Jesus does not want that for us. And so he'll come into our lives. And he'll bring those things. And hopefully we'll wake up and change to draw closer to him. Let's pray.